Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. My guest today is Lana Salant of the Ethical Omnivore Movement. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. An article in Wise Traditions, the journal of the Weston A. Price Foundation, published a report linking violent behavior to malnutrition. Ph.D. Sylvia Onusik says Americans living mostly on devitalized processed foods are suffering from malnutrition. In many cases, this means their brains are starving. She also says these processed foods expose children to mind-altering chemicals at very high levels. Some of the foods that are linked to violent behavior are sugar, artificial colors and flavorings, caffeine, alcohol, and soy foods. Bravo to Wise Traditions for letting the readers know about this study, as the issue of nutrition and behavior is something long overdue to be discussed in the American public. Next, one year after the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act has been implemented in schools across the country, some schools are dropping out of the program. While the federal government reimburses the schools, representatives from the districts have been saying the money isn't enough to recover their loss as more students have been packing their lunches or some of them just going hungry. While I don't support the school lunches that were served before the National School Lunch Program, the changes made aren't much better. The new menus were filled with lean meats and skim milk. Parents making lunch for their kids packed with nutrient-dense foods is the best option. Also, Long John Silvers has announced they're removing the trans fat oils from their non-batter dip products. They converted several years ago to trans fat-free oils in states and cities with trans fat-free laws and will be trans fat-free everywhere by the end of the year. However, I'm skeptical by what trans fat-free means. Unless they're using something like coconut oil or beef tallow, then their oil will have trans fats in it. These products listed as trans fat-free are only listed as such because they're legally able to claim zero grams trans fat per serving if the serving size is 0.49 grams or less. In other fast food news, strikes have been going on outside of McDonald's, Burger King, and other restaurants in 60 cities across the U.S. The workers are wanting to unionize and collectively bargain for a living wage. Not that I expect too many listeners here to eat at fast food establishments, but while the mass public is likely to avoid crossing the picket line, this is a great opportunity to show them how great our real food tastes. Finally, changes in Virginia state laws are being proposed to expand farm sales and some events without special permits. The changes are part of the Bonetta Bill, which came about last year after Martha Bonetta was fined for hosting a child's birthday party and holding other events on her farm. Always happy to hear news about laws changing to allow more farm and food freedom. And now for the main course, which today is the Ethical Omnivore Movement. On The Appropriate Omnivore, we talk a lot about how pastured meat, poultry, and dairy are important for the environmental and health reasons. Ethical reasons intersect very heavily with these two. As animals are pastured, they're living in great conditions. And I wouldn't feel safe eating meat from animals that were abused. Eating pastured meat for ethical reasons is just as important as eating it for the planet or your body. Here to talk with me about the ethics of meat is Lana Salant. 
Lana has created a site called the Ethical Omnivore Movement, which tells you everything about being an ethical omnivore, plus has blog posts and recipes for dishes to cook on Mindful Meat Mondays. Lana, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Aaron. I'm really happy to be here. I think it was only a matter of time. You're the ethical omnivore. I'm the appropriate omnivore. And I've also had on my show very early on, I had the angry omnivore. And there are a lot of different bloggers and podcast people that use the word omnivore for their name. So at some point, I'd like to get on the healthy omnivore and the happy omnivore. And of course, sometime maybe we'll have on here the one who really familiarized the term omnivore, Michael Pollan, the omnivore's dilemma. Oh, yeah. One of my heroes. I love him. Yeah. Mine, too. He was a big influence. Who are some of your other influences? Oh, Joe Saladin, of course. And um, actually, one of the farmers that I have on my team that I call uh, is um, Dylan Biggs. I was uh, I think he was the very first farm that I ever visited that was an ethical farm. And I've learned a lot from him then and now. I've been I think I've been uh, associated with Dylan for geez. Since, what, 90, no, probably, yeah, about 99. He's great. I got to meet him through your Facebook group for the Ethical Omnivore Movement. Yeah. And he's been very interested in the stuff I've been posting. Yeah. Oh, he's wonderful. So, yeah, I, I come by it kind of naturally from firsthand. So, but, um, yeah, I think I think Joel Saladin really was the biggest influence for me, him and him and, and Pollen, for sure. They're very well related and they intersect because Michael... Pollan talks a lot about the polyface farm, Joel's farm, in his book, The Omnivore's Dilemma. And that was pretty much how I learned about him. And he's, I would say, as influential, if not more, as Michael Pollan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did you get involved with real food in the first place? Again, very naturally, I was raised by my grandfather who refused to put in uh, electric heat. So we were, we were cooking on a cook stove uh, and, uh, and a wood-burning furnace, and we had the biggest garden in the neighborhood. And uh, he brought me out to farms in the neighborhood, uh, you know, in the neighboring communities around uh, southern Alberta where I, I grew up. So I was bringing uh, not very popular uh, beef tongue sandwiches on homemade bread to school and chicken feet soup and, and the whole bit. So he taught me uh, how to respect nature. He was, uh, he was a hunter in his youth, not so much in the later years. So we had a lot of uh, people bringing us wild meat as well. So... Yeah, I, I had uh, I had the great privilege of being raised by by the salt of the earth. So I I learned very very young. I was even reading about um, herbology. I I took a course in it when I was quite young as well. I was going uh, over the uh, B, the uh, U.S. border to Whitefish, Montana, to a naturopath when I was 16 years old. So yeah, my my education began quite young. I don't think I even realized how much I had learned until these last couple of years, how much my, my grandfather actually taught me. I can see a lot of us don't have that experience. I think many people like me, we learned it all rather recently or maybe a little earlier than I had, but it was a lot through reading. Like we talked about the omnivore right. dilemma, that was the big thing that opened my eyes up. And also the West Nate Price Foundation, Sally Fallon, that's yes. been a big influence yeah, he he's a huge huge influence for me as well. Sorry, got kind of stuck for stuck for ideas there. The big influence she's had on me is getting to eat more organ meats, which I see that that you also had exposed to at an early age with the tongue and the yeah. chicken feet. Yeah, the chicken feet. Not that they're organs, but they are definitely uh, nothing that anybody would uh, would think to eat first. That's for sure. <laughs> 
Um, I, I struggle with organ meats a little bit. I don't like a lot of them. I'm, I'm, trying, to, um, I'm trying to like liver right now. And uh, yeah, I think, I think I had a bad experience with my own mother not being able to cook it very well when I was young, as, as all our mothers, I think, overcooked it to the point where it was, it was uh, inedible without a gallon of ketchup. I haven't been able to get to the point where I can eat just <laughs> liver cooked in onions. Yeah. I have to mix my liver in with some ground beef. So what I like to do is I make a beef and liver chili. I don't taste the liver in there at all. And I think that's the way a lot of people get their liver. At the Wise Traditions Conference by the Weston Price Foundation every year, they serve this organ meatloaf, which is a meatloaf with liver and some other organ meats in it. And that's the easiest way. I know a lot of farmers in my area, that's how they sell their organ meats because they found that when they just sold the liver, then people were coming back and saying, oh, we don't like the taste of it. So they found that the best way to sell it is to put this mix of organ meats and ground beef of course, right. those can get a little pricey, so I just buy them separate, and it's really not that hard to mix them together. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, at the end of the day, I think if you're eating, if you're eating really well, you don't necessarily have to have organ meats. It's good if you like them, and they are quite good for you, high in iron. But um, yeah, if you're eating, if you're eating good pasture red meat, I think that's 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 good enough to be to be quite honest with you. But I think now, it, for me, it's become a challenge. I'm going to like it. I don't know what I'm going to have to do to like it, but I'm going to. There's even people who take liver, what they call liver pills. They're, uh, they, they freeze liver. I've heard of those. Yeah, and they cut them little tiny pieces, and they just pop frozen pieces, wash it down with whatever, and, uh, and call it a day. So that might be, that might be something that I, I, I try as well. They say eat liver once a week, but you don't have to eat it that often. You don't have no. to make every meat that you eat liver or an organ meat and Definitely. when they talk about organ meats that doesn't just mean eating an organ meat instead of a muscle meat but it also means when you cook your muscle meats it's important that you don't cook it in a vegetable oil it should be cooked either in a butter or a beef tallow something that comes from organs indeed indeed yeah i have not used vegetable oil well olive oil obviously but um but the other yeah the other i don't not 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 i'm still shocked i i actually my my uh rent paying job is working for a a big uh commercial uh grocery store and so i see i i know how much margarine i sell in a day but i'm actually quite shocked by it still the soy and the margarine that goes through through our tills is 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 still shocking to me. I have not eaten margarine. I I don't think I've ever really eaten margarine. I've had it, you know, by accident out or at somebody's home. But you know, once again, right back to my childhood, my grandfather was all about butter. I envy you because I went through a long time where I was told that margarine was good, and right. it wasn't until recently that I learned about it through again the Western Price Foundation. They explained what margarine really was. And when you look at it, it all makes sense. Why is margarine healthy? Because no one says fried food is healthy. And the same <laughs> thing that those French fries are cooked in is in margarine. Plus they put in artificial coloring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the fat, okay, this is the, this is the thing. Why margarine even came to be was it shelf life. So that alone, that alone should say something. And a problem also with cooking muscle meats in real things such as the olive oil or butter, the tallow. 
I often wonder about these restaurants, even when they say they're serving a grass-fed steak, what do they cook right. it in? Exactly, right? Yeah, yeah. And so what do you cook your steak in? Usually I cook it in a beef tallow, sometimes a butter, right. those right. two, and sometimes also cook it in a little beef broth. Right. Yes. Yes. Indeed. I do a lot of stew. To be honest with you, it's. I do that too. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big uh, I'm a big crock pot stew person. To be honest, so and I do use coconut oil, but I'm I'm getting a coconut bit, oil is good too. Yeah, I'm getting a bit away from it. I, I'll tell you why because I'm not convinced with the coconut craze that's going on right now that it is sustainable. Um, Palm oil is not on the on the table at all for me because of what's, you know, the rainforest and the orangutan habitat. Even if they say it's sustainable, it's, you know, we'll talk about this soon, but it's back to like sustainable seafood. It, to me, it's becoming a myth. It's, uh, it's, it's a coined phrase that I, I really don't think is, is with any integrity backed up. That is a good point about coconut oil because for most people, it's not local, so... That doesn't help with the whole locavore movement. Yeah, you know, when you really, really want to get down to it and you want to eat locally, you you've got to start seeing, you know, thinking about what what it is that you're 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 taking for granted that is being imported and how it's affecting where it's being imported from. There was a big article out not too long ago about quinoa. I don't know if you read about that about the, you know. Uh, the the people the indigenous people are are not getting quinoa anymore at the prices that they could because of all of the exporting so it's becoming a real issue there you know we're you know us with our first world uh uh fads and desires and wishes we we don't understand how we're affecting where we're getting our our uh, imports from as well right so when you're thinking about sustainability it's not just your area you have to worry about you have to think about the whole big picture and so many of us just just can't we're we're you know we're thinking about what, what's going to help us and our family and our health immediately and 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 yet we can't get out of that little bubble of of frankly of, of kind of selfishness that that we're in and the coconut oil is not inexpensive. It's rather pricey. <laughs> it really is, yeah. I had thought the same thing about beef towel, which is why at first I was using a lot more coconut oil. But that was mainly from looking at beef tallow that was sold in stores. So mm -hmm. they're going to yeah. mark it up. But then when I discovered that you buy it directly from the farmer at the markets, beef tallow is the more affordable cooking option. Yeah, and you can render it yourself as well. And what I do also, what I cook in, um, is I do a lot of, uh, I, I, I constantly have a pot of bone broth going. And I use the fat from the bone broth because I don't, I don't, I know that they, they say that, or a lot of people will drink uh, the fat with the bone broth. What I can only take so much, so much fat at once. And so I scrape it off. It's in the fridge. It stays well. And that's what I cook with. You can also make your own beef towel because the stuff yes. that rises to the top of the bone broth is, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's, that's what I cook in very often. And also, um, I get some really amazing, um, uh, pasture bacon as well. And I save a lot of the bacon fat as well. So like you. And then there's ghee. You can make ghee from butter as well. Clarified butter. It's amazing to cook in. It is amazing. And ghee is another thing that you can make yourself because the ghee in the store is expensive. Oh, it's, out, it's outrageous. Yeah. It's really not that hard to make ghee. It's a pretty no. simple recipe of just heating it up and straining it. Exactly. And refrigerating it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so you're right. We don't need a lot of these, these fancy uh, imported oils. 
we have a lot very accessible to us, especially if you're, you are in fact eating, you know, eating your pasture meats and you've got, you know, you've got the fats available to you. Yeah. And you hit upon a good point about first world problems. And that's very much a reason that I argue that we should be eating meat as long as the meat is coming from local animals, because mm. we can't rely only on plants from local food. Yes, we can. And we can, you know, because the, the other thing that we, we don't do that you used to you know, you think about all the, the importing that we have, like a mere hundred years ago, there was no such thing, you know, except for possibly exotic spices and stuff. But we lived off the land. We lived, you know, people were living off what they had, you know, within, you know, they call it a, what, what, uh, a thousand yard farm or a thousand yard garden. Um, they, they ate what they had, you know, accessible to them. Uh, what you what you grew in the summer, you canned for the winter. You know, you ate root vegetables when root vegetables were available. And you may do, you know, you didn't get quinoa from somewhere. You didn't get, you know, oils from somewhere else. You didn't get strawberries from Cuba. You ate according to the seasons, according to what was local to you. It can be done and nobody wants to do it. Nobody does. So... Obviously, eating local, that's part of the ethical omnivore movement. How else would you define ethical omnivorism? Ethical omnivorism, it's a broad subject and it's not. Ethical omnivore is basically just about being the, the most accountable human you can be, the most accountable earthling you can be. And that means, that means having reverence for every bite that you take, knowing where it came from, and being responsible in the whole process, not just the grocery store and the and the cellophane wrap stuff. It's it's getting to know your farmer. It's it's making sure that you're like I I slapped up a poster the other day about how little we actually as North Americans spend on food compared to other countries that will spend up to fifty percent of their wage on food. We don't do that anymore because we're we want cheap, we want fast, we want convenient, and we don't. We don't make the connection of where that comes from. So if we're eating locally, guaranteed we know the farm because we're, we're, we're conscientious about that. So we know where it's coming from. We, we are keeping the money uh, local. We're, we're, we're making sure that, our, that our, um, our communities are being grown in that, in that respect, right? So we're build, we get very, very strong that way without you know, outsourcing or insourcing. So it's, it's about, it's about making sure, being conscientious about building your local community. It's about eating humanely. You know, we're, we get a lot of flack from our, our lovely vegan community because they, they believe we haven't gone far enough. We're allowed to be called humans. We require the saturated fat and the animal proteins in a, in our diets, right? Right. So we're going to end these animals' lives, but we can also make sure that those lives were as natural and humane as possible. I think it's actually our duty. It's our duty to do that. Uh, making sure that the animals are slaughtered humanely, that they're not, uh, you know, once they, they live a good life, that they're not on a four-hour uh, expedition in transport to be slaughtered inhumanely, then we've defeated our purpose. So that's another thing that we've got to be able to source properly. And, and once you find your, your farm, you've got to also ask those questions of them. How are these animals slaughtered? Where are they slaughtered? What is the process? How are they fed? Are they fed locally? Is there GMO 
um, in their in their in their feed because then again we're you know we may say no to GMOs but how are our animals being fed right so we've got to there's a lot of avenues but it, and it takes some work but it's all all work that we we should do and we have to be diligent about so I in a nutshell I think that's that's about it it's just being the most conscientious consumer that you can be and being aware and being awake I like the log line that you have on your website honor your body your food, our planet, because those are the three things that I think of too, in terms of eating sustainably and healthy. Ethical omnivore movement has three tiers to it. It's about optimum omnivore human health. One. Okay. We can't, we can't have any form of compassion towards an animal if we don't actually honor it in ourselves and for ourselves. If I'm not feeding myself optimally, how can I even start to think about compassion towards anything else if I'm, I'm suffering? There's nothing ethical about, about failing health. Nothing for the sake of an, you know, a, a fanciful ideal. So first of all, there's that. Then there's um, honoring our food, which we just discussed, making sure that the animal lives in, as natural as possible of life, possibly and most likely uh, a better life than that animal would live in the wild, you know, dealing with predators, trying to, you know, trying to, to feed itself on and on. So we're feeding the animal, we're making sure it dies a better life than, than by a wild predator. Um, and then honoring our planet, and that encompasses the whole thing. You know, it encompasses sustainability and it encompasses local eating It encompasses uh, ocean conservation, you know, the conservation of land, sea and sky. Our planet is a very important one, possibly the most important. Do you think sometimes that one is overlooked by some of the people in the movement? In what regard? People are more concerned with the health and with how the animals are raised, but they're maybe not as concerned about environmental issues as they are more for their own health or just the animal's health yeah oh yeah absolutely it's a, it's a huge issue um and, and i think it, it goes for all three things sometimes we're only just worried about our health we feed ourselves incredibly well and we're actually doing all the things uh in in the what the ethical omnivore movement stands for but we don't even know why we're doing it. it's just by default we happen to be spoiling ourselves with this wonderful food <laughs> so we don't even actually understand you know the the implications of of the good we're doing when we do it and then we'll or maybe we'll get too involved in in animal and animal uh, rights that we could care less about what we feed ourselves. And, and many people are so worried about saving animals, they actually don't care about even saving the rest of the planet. They, it's just all about that. So they're very, very linear in their thinking about that. Or some people are into environmentalism. They want to stop the oil sands, and they want, but they, they have no clue about what's going on with the farms or the, or the food, or you know what I mean? So people get really pigeonholed in, in, their, in their focus, and they need to broaden that out. They need to see the big picture. So, yeah, long way around, I agree with you. <laughs> and you were talking about raising the animals in the most proper conditions and treating the animals as humanely as possible. Are there certain types of meat that you won't eat that you think the animals are treated inhumanely and there's no way that that kind of meat or that type of food can be humane? Well, that's a that's a constant conversation that we have on EOM. What is should age matter? Should should um, how about the big the big ones um, are obviously veal and uh, foie gras, right? 
So, you know, foie gras, there's the the argument is that, well, the, you know, the, the, uh, the geese don't feel or the ducks don't feel the, the, the pipe go down their, their throat because they have no gag reflex. But is that, we have to ask ourselves now, is that natural? No, it's not. It's not in any way natural. And so when we want an animal to live a natural life, we don't gorge it full of food just so we can eat one part of it. That, that, so that, that can't be ethical omnivorism, right? However, there is natural foie gras, right? right. There, there is ways to, to go. So once again, it's about sourcing. So now back to the, uh, to the veal. <clears throat> There's called rose veal. So these are little calves that live good, natural, wonderful lives. You know, more or less, they're they're pulled away from their mom. There's no way to do uh, dairy, even raw raw milk, uh, and and uh, killing of calves without pulling the babies away from their mother. So you know, you can get you know, you almost have to go the vegan route in order to see any ethics in in those two uh, things. But having said that, back to Roseville, how can we say that age matters? Because even when you kill some of the other animals, they're not very old. So how do we how do we okay it's this age for this species and that age for that species so we have to we've come to the conclusion that if they live no matter how long they live if they live a natural life as natural as we can provide for them in an unnatural setting of course being you know the agriculture industry and they're killed humanely we have to be good with that and that's what we've come to i would say that i'm a little more served by the idea of veal than foie gras because like you said if the foie gras the ducks can be fed without a tube, just walking up and eating the food like there are some farmers in Spain that do that. Indeed. I don't have much of an objection to that. Veal, the cows are killed pretty young and the age does differ. From my understanding, these factory farms, the cows don't live much longer than the veal calves. But with these pastured farms, I know the cows live, I think, a good number of years longer. They don't get to live full life because... From my understanding, if you eat the meat after the cows have passed naturally, then it doesn't have a lot of the nutrients left in it. Well, the, 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 thing, the thing with pasture cows is the reason they're kept alive longer is because it takes longer to get them to size, right? Right. So, and that's the other thing, that's, that's, that's the argument against veal as well, not just the age. Um, I personally, honestly, I don't eat veal or foie gras just for the record. I just don't, it's unnecessary. So for, for me, I don't, but we have to think broader, right? We have to encompass, um, you know, everybody who's in the movement for, so for back, back to raising an animal. So the, the argument that we have come up with or up, up, up against is if you allow the, the cow to live longer, it gets bigger, there's more meat, more food. Okay, so that's a better sustainability. The cows are kept older on, um, on a pasture because it takes longer to raise them on grass. We're not fattening them up and sending them to the slaughter in, in, you know, in a year. So it takes a couple years for them, for them to get to, to size where they are you know, ready for slaughter. So that's, that's the reason. So grass feeding a cow isn't, you know, isn't the same as is, is, uh, is grain or grain finished. And there are two other types of meat that I would add into the issue of is it humane or not. One right. is lamb because <laughs> those are sheep that are slaughtered pretty young. Yeah. The older sleep, that's what we serve as mutton. The other one, and this is not talked about a lot, but this was told to me from a friend that grew up on a farm, is filet mignon. My friend explained to me that 
they put the cow in a box, so I guess its muscles don't stretch and it has this very tender feel to it. Hmm, I don't know about that. That's the, you've got me on that one. Filet, from my understanding, is just the cut of the meat. It's the tenderloin. Right, it is the tenderloin, but I'm not sure if there's a type of tenderloin that's not a filet mignon if the cow isn't hmm. raised. That was at least my friend's experience growing up on the farm. Perhaps oh. that was only how they did it. Not all of them do that. I need to research it more. I've no, I do tried now looking too. it up, and I haven't been able to find much on it. Oh, wow. Okay. No, I've got some farmers at my disposal. I'll ask the question. I've honestly, I've not, uh, I've not been asked that or nor have I, I researched it. So I will say, I, I, I guess that's, that's, that's a bit of homework for us. Both of us. Yeah. And we'll yeah, have indeed. to mention it on the show. We'll find out more <laughs> yeah. about it and talk about it on the ethical omnivore movement. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Well, we're going to talk more about ethical omnivore movement, about properly raising both animals and we'll get a little into the seafood issues. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflower.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Alea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. I'm interviewing Landis Saland of the Ethical Omnivore Movement. We've been talking about exactly what an ethical omnivore is and the proper ways to raise an animal as well as the benefits of eating locally. And Lana, I know one of your other passions in addition to talking about properly sourced meat is the issue with the oceans. So why don't you tell us a little about that? Okay, so uh, the oceans, you wanted to know what, about my passion for them. Um, very new passion when it comes to ethical omnivorism. I actually was uh, quite shocked at how much I didn't know about the state of the oceans a couple years back. Um, I, was, I watched, like I think half the world watched, the uh, documentary The Cove about the Taiji slaughter of the dolphins. And of course dolphins elicit so much passion in us uh and on the other hand uh when you think about eating a dolphin most of us in north america it's it's not 
it's nothing that we would even consider. So on some levels we're outraged and on other levels we're just like, well, it doesn't affect us. You know, it's over there. And, um, and so I, I, on my, I hadn't started up, um, just short of, uh, starting up ethical omnivore movement as a, as a Facebook page. I, uh, I had put this on my, on my personal page and a friend of mine said, well, what do you think about, uh, about the shark slaughter? Well, then again, you know, we don't eat shark fin soup, most of us, at $100 a bowl at a Chinese restaurant. Um, so I watched the um, documentary just about a week after I watched The Cove. I watched Shark Water. And I was, this was, my, it changed my life, I have to honestly say. I could not believe that we were killing, slaughtering 73 million sharks a year to the point of, of endangering them. Um, beyond beyond uh, a comeback because they're a large animal and it takes them a while to mature, to breed. So we're slaughtering them at a rate that they cannot recover their numbers. Uh, and for a bowl of soup, a bowl of status soup, a bowl of soup that was meant for emperors uh, and that now you cannot have a wedding without uh, losing face if you don't have uh, shark fin soup as a, as, a, as a Chinese person, no matter where you live. So we're also slaughtering them for some hocus pocus um, remedies that are supposed to cure cancer. Because I, on, on the, on the uh, documentary Shark Water, there was a fellow on there talking about sharks never get cancer. So if you eat shark fin, you won't get cancer as well. Well, it's just, it's, it's ludicrous to, to, to heartbreaking. So I jumped right on that bandwagon. I started a, a Facebook page called and I live in Vancouver, BC, Canada, I started a, a page called uh, Shark Fin Free BC. And uh, within two weeks of starting the page, I had 2,000 ocean conservation friends, and I studied and I learned, and I boycotted restaurants and, and oh, with my picket signs, and it became a grand, grand passion of mine. Uh, but the thing about the sharks is it's twofold. We slice off their fins have no use for the meat, toss them overboard to sink to the bottom to die agonizing, agonizing deaths. We are wasteful with it. We are also killing one of the most important apex predators, most ancient apex predators that the oceans have. They regulate the entire ocean, the seal populations, the other large fish. We are causing an ecological catastrophe over a bowl of soup. It's, it's, it's more ludicrous than, than I, I, I can even comprehend most days. So then I watched, as you and I had mentioned, you watched the same documentary, The End of the Line. Talk about the bluefin tuna that is now more or less extinct, being stockpiled by the Mitsubishi company in Japan so that they might sell an endangered fish. And on and on it goes. We are emptying the oceans at an alarming rate. 95% of our large fish are gone, just gone. And I think a lot of people, even when I post on ethical omnivore movement, a lot of people just don't, under, don't know. And I didn't know up until a couple years ago what, what was going on. Pretty soon we're going to have an ocean of jellyfish. But once again, I don't know if you know of the biologist Sylvia Earle, but she has a, she has a, a quote that I love. Uh, no blue, no green. And it's the truth. If we, we kill our oceans, we are 
essentially killing ourselves. And it's important. When I saw End of the Line, I had a very similar reaction because I didn't know that it was as bad. Certainly, I knew there were problems with the endangerment of a lot of fish. But End of the Line really owed me up to how big a problem it was. And a friend that I saw it with had the exact same reaction. So when you say that a lot of people aren't aware of it, I completely agree that this is something that a lot of people need to learn more about. Do you eat any type of fish or do you avoid seafood? I avoid seafood completely. Again, another Sylvia Earle quote, and she is an omnivore. Every fish counts at this point. We need to absolutely step away from the oceans. Due to diplomacy, I, I have to endorse sustainable seafood, but I believe the term sustainable seafood is an oxymoron. I don't see anything other than stepping completely away from the oceans, with the exception, just like I I believe in indigenous people killing the odd whale or the odd seal. Um, There are people that would have no animal protein aside from the oceans. So aside from those people, I really believe that we need to step away, pull out all our oil rigs, you know, get a, you know, if we're, we're going to paddle around on our inner tubes, I think that's about, about the extent of it. So yeah, no, to answer your question, I don't touch any seafood at all and haven't for probably about 18 months. And my brain seems to be working fairly well most days. You can get the omega-3s through grass-fed beef. I do get the omega-3s through grass-fed beef, indeed. Fish aren't the only thing that have it. And yeah. that was something growing up, we were all told, oh, you get your omega-3s through fish. That's the source of it. But that was because grass-fed beef wasn't very well known. And we're eating all this factory-farmed corn-fed beef that didn't have the omega-3 content in, in it. Indeed, indeed. And and let's not forget, we, you know, those of us who have access to uh, lakes, they, you know, we do have, our, you know, our lake fish as well. We have lake fish that we can rely on. Even at the, at the store that I work at, we have trout almost all the time. So I will eat, eat some trout, but nothing, nothing from, not, nothing ocean sourced. And in End of the Line, they also talked about a solution was instead of eating the fish that we're used to, eating fish that's more in an abundant supply, such as anchovies. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I don't, I'm just, yeah, no. They, they, they say they're abundant now, but you have 7 billion people's eyes on anchovies and sardines, and how sustainable will they be? The other thing that we have to look at is because we're killing uh, uh, fish above them that eat them, um, you know, we're, we're, affecting, we're affecting everything. So we need to leave the big fish alone to eat the little fish alone. And we have too many little fish. Like, we, you know, should we step in and eat all these little fish that are eating all the plankton that give us oxygen? Many people will argue for, yes, we need to now step in because we, 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 we affect uh, ecological systems and then we think we can go in there and save it by, uh, by us raping and pillaging. And it just, it just doesn't work like that. So anchovies, maybe they'll end up being overpopulated, but then maybe what we'll also do is everybody will eat anchovies. And I see that right now with sardines and, and mackerel, right? They're the big ones now to eat. And once again, not, not very long ago, albacore tuna was sustainable. And now, unless it's pole caught, it's not either anymore. That's an interesting point. Although anchovies and sardines do have a distinct taste, so... <laughs> I'm not sure how <laughs> likely that is that everyone could be eating them. I know a lot of my colleagues recommend eating them for the nutrient density, but I just 
I guess I'm a little chicken to try them. Yeah, no, they're not bad. I actually, I used to like sardines quite, quite a bit. The other thing that I find really, really interesting, I was going to try to find a, find a link for you. They're, they are um, developing algae and not, not ocean algae. They're developing it in, in growing greenhouse sort of thing without me making a fool of myself, not knowing a whole lot about it. Algae that has, now it's what gives the fish their, their omega-3s, right? Is the algae. So they're, they're, they're trying to produce algae now for human consumption uh, that is higher in, in, uh, in omega-3s than, than actually eating the fish. But now we also have to think about, okay, so say there was a lot of fish. And it was all good to go and uh, go and uh, drag the bottom of the ocean for them. There's no there's no such thing as healthy fish anymore. A lot of people will argue, oh, Alaska is and this is, but no. With the uh, the ocean acidification, the pollution, the the you know the plastics, and now the radiation. There's no healthy seafood, not in my opinion, and not for long. You were talking about not eating ocean seafood, but about eating if you can access to the lake seafood. Another mm-hmm. approach to seafood is Farmed fish. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> what do you think my thoughts are on that? <laughs> I imagine you're not a big supporter of farmed fish. Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, no. No, I think they're, they're, they're doing a, a, some good work, but um, not, not in any, yeah, nothing that I would endorse at this juncture. Farmed fish are polluting the oceans. We're feeding, we're actually feeding farmed fish like we're feeding farmed an, uh, factory farmed animals. We're feeding with soy and they're spreading bacteria into the the wild population they're killing out yeah bacteria and and disease yeah no not a fan of farm fish at all and then we and then we're gonna we can go down the road to genetically modified fish now genetically uh. modified salmon so where does it end like where does our frankenstein experiments end so farm fish is just yeah it's just a, a gateway drug to <laughs> gateway drug to to gmo fish that's my thoughts too yeah because like GMOs, it's raising fish in an area that's not their natural habitat. Feeding them unnaturally. It, it really, it's right. the factory farmed for fish. Yeah, and even if they are fed things that fish eat, they're still not in the right environment. Well, that's what, but what, what else we are doing is we're, we're feeding these farmed fish other fish that should be wild. It's just, it's just an ugly s- snowball effect. So back, I'll go back to my original statement, step away from the oceans, let them heal if they even can, because it's not just about empty oceans. Like people just think, oh, well, yeah, we'll eat all the fish till it's gone. Because it's really, I've had these, these statements made to me, well, we'll just, we'll just eat all the fish till, till they're gone and, and big deal. Oh, no. And then all the fish that we're eating, the plankton eaters, will eat all the plankton and we'll have no more oxygen. Lots, you know, you know how much oxygen we, we get from our oceans. And we couldn't live without them. Our coral reefs are dying. Yeah, we've got to really, really educate ourselves. The oceans are a huge, huge issue right now. And, and people just seem very bewildered by it. And, and there's many, there's many uh, cultures that never had a fish in their life. You know, when you're in the middle of, uh, you know, you're in the middle of the prairie, you know, you weren't, you weren't out eating an ocean fish. And we managed to live, managed to, you know, we managed to, to survive mm-hmm. okay. That would go, again, back to what we are talking about, about eating locally, mm-hmm. that some areas, they're not near any lake or an ocean. That's right. So how would they have traditionally had fish in their culture? Yeah, they just didn't. 
and now we're once again just like me talking about quinoa uh we're, we're now you know you've got these little coastal uh in, you know uh, indigenous communities that their fish they don't they can't even feed their families because we're we're uh we're stealing their fish to go to send it to to somebody you know somebody in a in a triple a restaurant across the world right so we we just we just don't think no, it's an issue that isn't brought up a lot because I've certainly been trying to bring it up more in my communities. And I'm glad that you wanted to talk about this because this is a topic that I've wanted to bring up on my show for a long time now. Oh, great, great. Yeah, it's a huge passion of mine. And I, and I do, like I said, I do struggle with with bringing the topic up on on ethical omnivore movement you know i'll i'll post something about a farm and get a hundred hundred likes hundred hits something about the ocean get nine or ten so you know it's twofold either either people just don't want to know about it or they they don't know how to know about it it doesn't affect them directly and so it's it's a it's a tougher battle it's a tougher battle for sure. It is. I just haven't seen it talked about a lot. And I'm not really sure what the reasons are that it's not brought up the same way that we bring up the issue of pasture meats. Well, I think part of it is, is because fish are fish. They don't elicit passion. They don't elicit sympathy. They're a fish, right? So when we're talking about farmed animals, I think we... we we do feel more compassion. They, they are, and even, well, you want to talk about dolphins? Oh, great, because they're, they're mammals and they're, they're very sentient and they're, they, you know, so, so the passion you can generate about those, those particular animals. Animals that we actually, none of us will eat, but I can't elicit the same passion about, about salmon that is, is, you know, struggling right now in, in, you know, in, in my coastal waters. You know, because it's a fish. So there, it won't, you, you have to, the thing about the oceans, you have to think logically about it. And we know logic isn't necessarily, <laughs> logic and common sense doesn't necessarily hit people first and foremost, but passion sure does. And I think ocean passion isn't the same as land animal passion. Well, that makes a lot of sense. If you look at pets, sure, a lot of people have pet goldfish, but how many people love their pet goldfish to the same extent that they love a dog or yeah, a cat. Yeah, never, never. You know, you'll, you'll flush that goldfish down the toilet the minute it starts swimming funny. You won't take it off to the vet. So I think that is probably the premier reason why we don't have this grand passion for the oceans is we just, we just don't know how to, how to have the passion for it. And I wish everybody would be as instantaneously grabbed as we were when we saw End of the Line. You know, I think you have to have a true love for the oceans first and foremost to, to want them to thrive. And when you're disconnected from the oceans, it's really hard. There's so many steps to it. I find that sometimes fear mongering <laughs> works a little better for the oceans when you tell people, listen, this isn't really even about the fish. This is about the survival of the planet. We kill the oceans. We, we don't live anymore. That's just like the honeybees, Right. People, people don't get it. How can you feel compassion about a bug, right? And yet, if we don't have our pollinators, we, again, don't have a planet. As a kid, when my goldfish got sick, I didn't take it to the vet, but I could actually not flush it down the toilet. <laughs> I buried it in the yard by a creek. I thought, bury it near where there's some water. Aw, that's a cute story. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps that's why I have more passion about this, because 
I can see more in fish than wanting to flush them down the <laughs> toilet like other people do. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. But yeah, and, and I'm sure lots of people do actually bury their little fish. But generally, I don't think people, I think, I think with fish, there's not love. There's, there's fish have an aesthetic, aesthetic quality when we have them in our homes. And it may be something about the food too, although a lot of people like fish and like to eat it. How many of them like to eat the same way they like to eat a burger or bacon? Yeah, yeah, you know. I actually, I, you know, if you, if you knew my fish love, uh, the fact that I don't eat ocean fish is, is a huge sacrifice for me. I ate fish, my grandfather uh, fished daily, and I had trout for breakfast more than I had anything in my life. Wow. That's why my brain's so huge, Aaron. That's why. <laughs> huge, huge brain I have. No, but I did. I eat trout almost every morning for breakfast. So for me to, and I don't have access. I see some of those poor little withered trout that you see at the grocery store, and it's just not not the same as what I'm used to. So I, I hesitate to buy to buy them uh, compared to what I what I'm used to. But uh, ocean fish, you know, same thing. I I was addicted to sushi. I would eat sushi probably three, four times a week, and now nothing. So, yeah, it was a sacrifice for me, but it's a sacrifice many of us just have to make. It's not about, it's, yeah, it's, it, it really, really is. I can't say it enough. It's about the survival of the planet at this point. There are certain sacrifices that you have to make when switching to a diet of real food that's sustainable for mm -hmm. yourself, for the planet, for the animals. So since that's something that you've cut out, what are some of your favorite ethical omnivore foods to eat now <laughs> well I have lots lots available to me I, I personally do like lamb so I tell you I don't eat veal but and yet I will eat lamb but yeah I do I do love lamb so there's uh, there's there's local lamb I eat there's a few farms that I uh, I call upon here so I eat I eat beef I can't always afford the best to cut so a lot of times I am eating grass-fed hamburger a lot of times, as a matter of fact. So I've got a bunch of grass-fed hamburger recipes, or I just throw it in in, in soup, to be honest. But um, I also have lots, I eat lots of chicken, and I eat a lot of, I, like, I eat an awful lot of eggs. And lots of days, like I, we're going to speak, I hope, uh, soon about Mindful Meat Mondays, but lots of days, I don't eat meat at all. I really, really don't. I love to make a big pot of vegetable stew. I love it. And now we have we have farmers markets out there. I, I honestly don't miss if I put a good amount of bone broth in with the vegetable stew or soup, you honestly don't need as much as much meat. And if I have a breakfast of, of eggs and then I have my vegetable stew lunch and dinner, if I'm doing a bit of a cleanse or just because I like to, I wake up in the morning, I feel light, I feel good, you know, my brain's working a little bit better, my joints are moving a little bit better, and, uh, and, but I can't do it like I used to. I have, I have been a vegetarian vegan because of my, my yoga history, and it did some bad things to my health, so... I've been down the road, so I get to say, I get to talk about it. I get to say it, it was like this for me. Bone broth is a great way to get in your fat-soluble vitamins mm -hmm. and the nutrients that you get from meat. Kayla Daniel, the naughty nutritionist, she actually recommends that vegetarians get some bone broth in their diet. Oh, at least. But but then again, you know, vegetarians really, like I, I know some honest-to-goodness vegetarians. They're not even really doing it for ethics. They just honestly are, are 
meat is not appealing to them in any way. I, I know actually several, but they do, they do cheese, they do eggs, sometimes fish, but they truly are, are, yeah, repulsed by meat, by, by flesh. So uh, yeah, they come by very naturally. And I, and I believe that we need to listen to our bodies and the signals our bodies give us. So, yeah. And, and they live healthy, happy, you know, vibrant lives, but they do get animal protein on some level. So telling a vegetarian to eat bone broth is almost like telling them to eat flesh. It is. It's a harder one. Yeah. And it's not 100% necessary. It would be good if they could get it in. But if not, more of the importance is if they could at least get some fish and get in a lot of eggs and dairy. I love eggs. I don't eat meat a lot for breakfast. My breakfast almost consistently contain eggs. Yeah, same here. Me too. Me too. I I would be I would be really really depressed one day if I all of a sudden had a sensitivity to eggs because eggs play a big big part in my life. <laughs> they really do. They really do and I got some of the best eggs around. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like you. Lots and lots of eggs. And you were hinting a little earlier about your Mindful Meat Monday, which I love the concept because in a parallel universe, I don't know if we call it universe my good friend Stanley Fishman, author of the Tender Grass-Fed Meats books, he has a thing called Meaty Mondays. And yeah, yeah. I've started a thing called Meaty May. So <laughs> I saw your Meaty why May. <laughs> so why don't you explain a little what Mindful Meat Mondays are? Okay. You want? Do you want the the long story on how they how it was conceived, or just what? Oh they, yeah. Oh yeah. That's all about it. Okay. Um, well. Mindful Meat Mondays, I was actually, because I honestly do, you know, I come from that, the yoga background where I was vegetarian, vegan, and I, I, do, I do a lot of juicing, I do a lot of cleansing, and I love it. I do listen to my body a bit better than I, I once did, and I know when I need to start eating uh, back, back to meat and, you know, uh, such. But So I was on board with the Meatless Mondays people. I was. I just I thought it was a good idea for people to just, just not eat meat once in a while. Because you can, as you know, in, in our community, you can, you know, some people are eat. I think they're eating an overabundance of meat, you know, to a degree where it's just, yeah, it's not necessary. And that's the other thing about being an ethical omnivore. We have to start asking ourselves, what is necessary, right? What do I need to, to thrive, but bear, you know, barely instead of we're getting now into decadence and gluttony at some points, right? So I was on board with it. And then there was a Facebook page that was kind of similar to what we were doing, but it was more or less all about farm animals. It didn't have the huge scope that, that we struggle with. And they posted a, a, a poster from the Meatless Mondays person. It was a heart. And within the heart, it had stop heart disease, stop diabetes. It, it honestly was telling you that everything with encompassing even, I think, the zombie apocalypse could be prevented by not eating meat. And I, and I said to them, you know, this is, this is hogwash. And I, used, I didn't use that word hogwash. <laughs> I used one word. And I said, none of this is true. You're talking, you're, 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 you're spreading, uh, un, you know, un, untrue propaganda. Meat doesn't cause any of this. Certainly not pasture meat. And I asked him the question as well. If you, in fact, are endorsing small ethical farms, how can you possibly promote A, veganism, which one of the people were, and B, 
telling people that even if you endorse their product, this product will cause ill health. So I got really, I got quite angry about it. And I started really looking into the, the Meatless Mondays people. And they were also endorsing, of course, so you're not going to eat meat. So what, you, what should you eat in, in its place? Soy, corn, grain. Nothing was spoken about pasture meats being, being any different from CAFO meats, from factory farm meats. They weren't talking about sustainability other than factory farms are wrecking the world. And it was just, it was so short-sighted, it was so flawed, and it was a propaganda train that I decided to start Mindful Meat Mondays. To And the catalyst for it all as well was Meatless Mondays came to, to my city of Vancouver in a big way. And I have, there's a lot of vegans here where I'm a coastal kind of a hippie city. And the city of Vancouver latched on to this and wanted to start pushing it in schools and old folks' homes. There was a big rally outside one of the butchers in the area where the butchers were, you know, endorsing. And they, they were one of the butchers I visit. They, they endorse only ethical meat. And they were saying, you know, there's a difference. And they were you know, the farmers that, that uh, they represented you know, came out for this rally. I didn't make it to, I actually read about it after the fact in the newspaper. So I decided, like I said, I decided to latch on to this. And so it's a twofold thing. It is endorsing a humane farm and it is also matching it up with a humane or ethical chef. So the two put together in Mindful Meat Mondays. We put it out every Monday. It's 12 weeks deep now and it's gathering some speed and it's gathering some some negativity too because a lot of people say, well, why do you have to have it on Mondays? Why are you why are you opposed to people not eating meat one day a week? And and that's not what it is at all. But I believe sincerely that Meatless Mondays needs to have some direct opposition. If they were being forthright and they had their science right, and they had their agenda right, because let's face it, they don't want meatless Mondays. They want meatless Mondays to Sundays. They want meatless every day, and that's they, they don't make any bones, in, no pun, uh, in, <laughs> in saying as much, right? So I think there needs to be a buffer, and I could have had it another day of week, but we deliberately had it on Mondays for that reason. I agree with you. They want it more than just Monday, and that's why they yeah. created the Meatless May, which is why I responded with oh. my May. And I had the same problems with you about Meatless Monday. If people don't know about the difference between pastured meat and factory farm meat, and they go for one day without eating any type of meat, then they're not any better because they're just going to go back to eating the factory farm meat on Tuesdays. Yeah, there's there's no education there, Aaron, at all. You know, they're, and they're and they're also sending signals with two demographics that need to be properly full of nutrients is the young and the old. They need to care for their health. And we need to care and it's also could you get more two more uh, helpless demographics? You're going to hit schools and old folks homes like are they serious? No disagreement here. It's been okay. great talking to you. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. But before we go, tell the listeners where they can find your website. Our website is www.myeom.com. So it's M-Y-E-O-M.com. And you can find us on Facebook at eom-ethicalomnivoremovement.
Well, thank you so much. It's been great having you. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. This Saturday, September 7th, the Institute of Domestic Technology will be offering its Food Crafting 102 class. You'll spend a full day learning how to make cheese, apple cider pickles, and multi-seed crackers from scratch. The class starts at 10 a.m. To register, go to instituteofdomestictechnology.com. Also, on Sunday, September 8th, the Culture Club 101 introduces Session 5 of its GAPS cooking series. This class is all about sweet treats, teaching you how to make and getting you to sample rain-free cookies, cupcakes, and coconut truffles. To sign up, visit the website at cultureclub101.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, check out the community calendar on the Weston A. Price Pasadena webpage at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guest next week is Justin Smith, director of the documentary Staten Nation. For more information on my guests and to listen to past episodes, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you,